1 Corinthians chapter 10. As we dive back into our study, our year-long study that we've been in of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the Greek city of Corinth, uh, um, a neat church, uh, a gifted church, but a very broken church, uh, uh, a divided church that had a lot of factionalism and infighting. And here Paul is trying to get them to focus on the gospel as the way forward for unity and life together as a church. But first let me ask you some questions. Is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Is it okay for a Christian to watch an R-rated movie? Is it okay if you're a Christian kid to trick-or-treat on Halloween, a very not-Christian kind of day? Is it okay for uh, Christians to practice yoga? Is it okay for Christians uh, to play video games that involve killing people with guns and casting magic spells as part of the combat of the game? Is it okay for Christians to practice martial arts or watch uh, combat on TV, you know, mixed martial arts, or, or to, to keep and bear arms if we are sons and daughters of the Prince of Peace? Is it okay? You know, there's a lot of areas in the Christian life that are pretty black and white where the Bible says it, and it's, you can just put your finger right on it and say, yep, that's right and wrong. You know, the Bible's really clear, thou shalt, shalt not commit adultery, or the Bible's really clear, don't lie. You know, kids lying to your parents is wrong. These things are clear. But then there are other issues that seem to be a little more gray, where the Scripture doesn't speak directly to them, and you find Christians coming down on either side of the issue, arguing their positions with scriptural uh, uh, defense for it. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians. Starting, actually, we're in chapter 10. It starts back in chapter 8. So chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Paul is addressing a gray area that was roiling the church in Corinth. It was a gray area that was causing people in the church to come down to different sides of it. It's not a gray area that we necessarily wrestle with in American culture, but, but some people in some cultures, they still wrestle with this issue in parts of the world. And the issue is, should Christians, is, or put it this way, is it okay for Christians to eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan god as part of the worship? Um, so imagine you're back in Corinth in that day, and there's some guy going to the temple of Zeus. He goes to Zeus with his goat. He sacrifices the goat. They take a little bit of the goat meat. They burn it on the altar. They take some of the goat meat and the the worshipers eat it together as part of the sacred meal with the God. And then uh, they take the rest of the goat meat that people didn't eat and they sell it for anyone to buy. And so now you're a Christian going to, you know, Corinth's version of Stop and Shop. And, uh, and there you are to pick up some goat meat for stew and it's been sacrificed to a foreign God. Are you allowed to eat that goat meat? Is it okay to go to the, the, the worship of the false gods because you know, you know what? This isn't even really a God. I mean, you know, where are the lines? What are Christians allowed to do? And there are some people in Corinth who are saying, I don't think we should eat that stuff. I don't think we want to support idolatry. 
Then there were other Christians who were saying, what's the big deal? We're free in Christ. All things are permissible for me in Christ. Look, it's just meat. It's just food. God made it. Just because some, you know, some benighted pagans offered it to their non-existent deity, that means I can't eat the meat with a thankful heart to God. I know what the truth is. And so there are these different positions in the church. And so Paul speaks into this situation. And, and even though probably this week you're not going to be wrestling with whether or not to eat food sacrificed to an idol, there are still these gray areas. And I think that the, the principles and the approach that Paul gives us actually applies very well in a lot of other situations. So should Christians eat meat offered to idol? Or can they? Is it okay that they, that they do? And Paul's basic answer, if I could kind of summarize it, is yes, but. Yes, it's okay to eat meat offered to idols, but be careful. But be careful. And, and, and that's kind of what he's laying out here in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is, is the but be careful part. So yes, it's okay to do that, but, and, and one of the, the buts is, but don't do it if it's going to trip other people up spiritually. That's really what chapters 8 and 9 focus on. Is, is you know, don't, don't eat meat offered to idols. If, you know, imagine you're, you're eating it and then your Christian friend comes over to your house for a little Bible study and afterwards you have dinner together. And, and you know, the, the other Christian's like, is that meat offered to idol? And you're like, yeah, what's the big deal? Come on, get over it. Okay. And then, you know, then they go home guilty because they're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, what am I doing? And so, so you've tripped them up in their faith, even though you're free to eat it. So, so a lot of chapters 8 and 9 are about understanding that our rights and freedoms as Christians should not be held as more important than the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. That the spiritual growth and, and the salvation of people who don't know Jesus is far more important than me exercising my rights as a Christian to do what I want because I'm free in Christ. So, so that's one but. Yes, you can eat the meat offered idols, but don't do it if it trips other people up. But here's the second but, and that's what we're going to look at today in chapter 10. Yes, you can eat meat offered idols, but don't do it if, if it actually leads you to participate in idolatry. In other words, be careful that in the exercise of your freedom, in you as a Christian being like, well, I'm free to do what I want. I'm in Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm saved by grace, not by works. Be, be careful that in that freedom, you don't go so far that you're actually sinning and you're rationalizing your sin as, well, I'm free in Christ. You know, be careful you don't take it that far. You know, some of us uh, uh, grow, grown up in Christian backgrounds and some of us grew up in very legalistic Christian backgrounds. And, and if you've grown up in a legalistic Christian background and you've kept your faith, you often have an experience of kind of backpedaling away from that. You don't want to be legalistic. But the problem is you can fall off the other side of the beam. You know, you can jump so hard from one side of the horse, you fall off the other side. And you can end up actually in sin. So, you know, can a Christian have a drink of alcohol? I, I cannot find an argument from the Bible that says it's a sin to have a drink of alcohol. I just can't find it, you know? So you're free. So, okay, I can have a drink. Can I have two drinks? Can I have three drinks? Well, I'm free, right? Well, this one was free. That one's free. What about the fourth one? You know, at what point do I go from freedom to buzzed 
to drunk. And now I'm under the influence of alcohol. And the scripture is very clear. Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so somewhere there, in the exercise of my freedom, I've, I've crossed the lines. I, you know, I'm free to drink alcohol. Oh, look, I'm in Colorado. I'm free to smoke a joint. Hmm. Can I smoke a joint without becoming under the influence? What if we had a church in Colorado? I'm kind of glad I'm in Massachusetts. <laughs> it, it gets really complex, doesn't it? And so, so where is that line where Christian freedom becomes license to sin and a rationalization for sin? And so Paul's warning them, be careful not to cross that line. If, if I had to pick a verse from this passage that we're going to study that would sort of summarize Paul's main message, I would pick 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where he says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If I had to kind of like pick one verse that just seems to get at the core of what Paul wants to say, you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall through the exercise of your freedoms. And so what Paul does here is he uh, musters three general arguments for why Christians should be careful of that danger, of, of that but, of that caution. Yes, you're free, but be careful that you don't end up harming yourself spiritually. And so the three arguments actually start in chapter 9, verse 24. Let me just walk you through them uh, briefly. The first one is chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And the first argument is you, you should view the Christian life like a race with the goal of winning the prize. Right, look, look at these verses. Let me read them to you. Chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So Paul goes to an athletic image. Uh, you know, where, where Boston's a crazy big sports town. Corinth was a crazy big sports town. You've heard of the Olympian Games. There were actually four major Greek games that took place in those days. Um, so it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the Grand Slam. They have these four events that would take place. And one of the big ones was the Ismithian Games, which took place every other year in Corinth. So every other year, Corinth is just this town going bananas over sports. So Paul settles on this, this imagery, and he says, look, it's like a race. Don't you know... That in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. His point isn't that we're competing against other Christians, that only one of us gets to go to heaven. That's not the point. The point is, we got to live our Christian lives like athletes who are running for a prize. And how do athletes live? Well, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will... They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So, so the point is, you know, think of an athlete. An athlete's free to eat whatever they want, but they want to win the prize. So they voluntarily restrict themselves. An athlete's free to sleep in, but if they want the prize, they've got to get up early and train. An athlete's free to stay up all night if they want, but they know that they need their sleep. You know, so an athlete disciplines their body. Um, uh, my 
my uh, oldest son is a swimmer, my youngest son is too, but my older son's a swimmer, and, you know, I just am amazed at how much the kid swims. It's like five days a week, and, you know, two to three hours a day in the pool. You know, he, like, he'll come home and he'll tell me how many yards he swim. I'm like, that's like three miles. He'll be like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Now, you know, I just, you know, I throw up in my mouth when he says that. I'm just like, oh, wow. Dude, I, I need a burger. Whoa. You know, <laughs> just thinking about that makes me hungry. And, you know, but, but he's punishing himself. He's pushing himself. He's disciplining himself because he wants, he has a prize in mind. That's what athletes do. And so what Paul is advocating here is is not rules. You know, the answer to solving the gray areas of life, the, the wrong answer is rules. If you try to, to answer the gray areas with, well, you can do this and you can't do that, it, it just blows up. It, it never works. And you give me a bunch of rules and I'll find a way around the rules because that's what I like to do. And we all have that instinct. Instead of rules, what Paul is advocating is a mindset. A mindset that says, I want Christ. He's the prize. I'm living to draw closer to Jesus. I want my life to look like Jesus. I want my values to be the same as Jesus. I want a heart that loves others the way that Christ loves others. And so if that's my mentality, then I'm like an athlete because I'm like, okay, I want Christ, whatever that takes. And if that takes saying no to some things, well, I'm going to say no to that. Not because I have to or because my pastor said I could or couldn't do it. But, but I am, I'm disciplining myself to live a certain way so that I might serve the Lord and serve others. That's the idea. It's this idea of self-discipline for the sake of laying hold of Christ. And therefore, Paul uses himself as an example. Verse 26, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. You know, some of our Christian lives look like we're out for a lazy jog. This is not a lazy jog. We want Christ. We're running from purpose. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, no, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be, what? Disqualified for the prize. We don't want to be disqualified. Don't pull a Lance Armstrong with your Christian life. You know, a guy who, amazing athlete, you know, still whatever, the greatest biker of all time, right? But whatever his accomplishments, whatever he achieved, he was disqualified for performing in, performance-enhancing drugs. And you can say, well, they all do it or whatever. You know, okay, but end of the day, he's disqualified. And all that he built has been taken away. It's amazing how a whole life for the Lord and a whole life of productivity, productivity can be cut short with one great disqualifying mistake. And so Paul's like, I don't want to do that. Because my goal isn't to find out what I'm free to do so I can do what I want. My goal is Christ. And so if that means I have to discipline myself and and focus, I'm going to do that. And that means that in those gray areas where I do have freedom as a Christian, I'm going to be careful that in the exercise of my freedom, I don't just wander over the edge into sin all in the name of, well, I can do it because I'm free as a Christian. I don't want to disqualify myself. And so there's, there's a level of, of real carefulness here that Paul has. But again, the key is it's driven by a desire to reach the goal, which is Jesus, not by a desire to make up a, a new set of legalistic rules for himself. And then Paul goes from there into chapter 10 to the second argument. So the first argument is, you know, 
a mindset, a champion's mindset is what we need in these questionable areas. Here's the second one. And now he goes to the history of Israel, which seems a little bit of a strange jump, doesn't it? He's like, he's in athletics. Then he turns, we get to chapter 10, verse 1, and he's going back into Israel's history. Like, Israel, how did you get from the Ismithian games to Israel's history? It seems like just random illustrations. No, 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 there's a connection here. Because you see, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is a history of a people who were disqualified. It's a history of a people who lost the race and got kicked out. As Israel turned away from God, they didn't get to enter the promised land. You know, look at uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. So here's the history of Israel. Coming out of Exodus in Egypt, right? You guys know the story. Moses led them out, and then they passed through the Red Sea, and and here's Paul saying, you know, they were baptized just like we were. That was their baptism. We have a baptism. And then, and then they were in the wilderness, and God was taking care of them. He was feeding them, and he was watering them. And, and so that was their version of communion, you know. Paul's saying they, they also were being fed by the Lord. And, and then finally they come to the promised land, and what happened? They said, we're not going in. We want to go back. We want different leaders. We're not in. We're out. And so God disqualified that whole generation of Israelites. Remember, they had, after that, they had to wander around the wilderness for how long? 40 years. The reason they had to wander for 40 years is to give enough time for all those people to die. And once they were all dead in the desert, their kids, the next generation, got to go in. But they were DQ'd. And they died in the desert. And so Paul wants to warn us with this. He says, look, these are our forefathers, which is interesting. He's speaking to Gentile converts here. Israel's your forefathers. They had the same baptism, the same spiritual food and drink. Verse 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Or verse 11, these things happened to them as examples. That word example in Greek is a pretty cool word. It's a Greek word, uh, tupos, from which we get our word like type or typology. It's the idea that Israel in the Old Testament was a type or a prefigurement of Israel in the New Testament, which is the church, the people of God. And, and so Paul wants to link them. He's like, look, guys, even though you're a bunch of Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus in Corinth, Israel is your spiritual type. And so you need to learn the lessons from Israel. You need to look back at Israel's history as the, as the new Israel established in Christ. You need to learn from that Old Testament past. And you've got to be careful. Don't fall into sin. Don't, don't let the free exercise of your Christian rights lead you to disqualifying action. So what they do? How they disqualify themselves? Well, look at verses 7 to 10. Paul rattles off four things Israel did in the wilderness in that, that time from when they left Egypt till they got to the promised land in 
wanted to turn back. Four things that disqualified them. The first one, I'll just rattle them off real quick. Number one, verse seven, idolatry. Verse seven says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Don't worship other gods. Don't turn to gods that aren't gods. And then you got this pull quote from Exodus where it's a reminder. You know the story of the golden calf in Egypt? That's where that quote's from. So the Israelites are waiting at the foot of Mount Sinai for Moses to come down with the Ten Commandments. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And he never comes. So they say, "Ah, well, we just forget him. Let's just make our own God. And they make the golden calf. And, of course, that's right when Moses comes back. And, uh, and they, so they sit down to eat. They have the, the sacred meal with the God. And then they get up to indulge in basically kind of like a big drunken orgy, just like the pagans do. And so look at that. God judged them. So don't do that. Don't, don't make the mistake of falling into idolatry, you Corinthians. And Christians at South Shore Baptist, let's not make the mistake of falling into idolatry. Or what about the second thing they did in verse 8? We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Again, Israel fell into this sin. Corinth was struggling with sexual immorality. They, Corinth lived in a sexually loose culture. We live in a crazy sexually loose culture. And so we have to be careful of sexual immorality. And we've talked about this before. You can go back to previous sermons. We, we've looked at this because this was a real issue in Corinth. But sexual immorality in the Bible is any sexual relationship outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. That God created marriage and God created sex and he created them together, period. And so that's what it's there for. Is, and so to, to express that sexuality outside of a male-female marriage is biblically sexual immorality. And we need to be careful because that disqualified the Israelites. We need to watch our lives. And then the third one, the third disqualifying sin of Israel, was they put the Lord to the test. Look at verse 9. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. I just, that's the worst. I hate snakes. Oh, I, you know... I hate snakes. It's biblical to hate snakes. It's totally biblical. My grandpa hated snakes. You know, I, I, I agreed with him. And so, you know, they were killed. Because why? They put the Lord to the test. If you go back to that story, here's the Israelites in the wilderness. And, and one day they just had it with a menu. They're like, manna every day. Manna for lunch, manna for breakfast, manna for dinner. We're sick of it. Isn't there anything else on the menu? We want something else to eat. Can we just go back to Egypt? And God's like, no, but you can have snakes, you know. (laughs) I've had nightmares like that. Um, Putting the Lord to the test. Going through those difficult times in life where we just put our foot down and say, God, this isn't fair. If you really loved me, you'd do this. And we demand something from God. Not the faith-filled lament that we find in the Bible, but an unbelieving, demanding, prove-it God kind of attitude. That's what this testing is. Which, of course, leads naturally to the fourth disqualifying sin of Israel, verse 10. Grumbling. He says, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by a destroying angel. So idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and grumbling. You know, I'll be really honest, I really do like grumbling. Uh, I even like the word grumble. 
It's one of those onomatopoetic words that just makes me happy to say it. Grumble. It feels good. Uh, we all like to grumble. We like to complain. But, but there's a danger in grumbling, isn't there? Israel was a grumbling people. That was the sound of Israel as they went from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was just grumble, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. And, and that's a dangerous spirit to have in your heart, which we don't often think of. You know, there's probably many of us here who never in our wildest dreams would ever imagine ourselves bowing down before a statue of Zeus. And probably a lot of us here who, who would say, no, I, I don't commit sexual immorality. I'm, I'm committed to holiness in that area of my life. But when it comes to grumbling, huh, this is a pastime complaining and pointing out why everyone else is so stupid and I'm so smart and why don't they just do it that way and I don't understand this and you know what else bothers me and let me tell you, you know, and you can just take up hours grumbling and mumbling but be careful that in the free exercise of your freedom of speech, which you have, that you don't use that to exercise it all the way into sin. And so here's what Paul is pointing out. He's saying, let's be careful. Look back at Israel. Remember, they got DQ'd because they had just wandered into sin. And, you know, it's always a danger in the Christian life to live a kind of Christian life where we're always living on the very edge between obedience and sin. You know, there's an edge there. And it's easy to live the Christian life right there on that edge. You know, like, well, I'm not sinning yet. I mean, I'm free to do this. And we're, you know, walking along the edge and and just seeing how far we can go. Um, You know, with whatever it is. It's like, I'm free free to, you know, watch a movie, aren't I? Am I free to watch an R-rated movie? Yeah, but if what you're watching is stirring up, you know, you know, lust or, or if it's, it's stirring up other ungodly feelings and desires, you know, is that good for your soul? Where is it taking you? What, what is it pushing you toward? And I can't answer that with a rule. You have to know your heart. You have to know where your heart is and, and whether or not you're seeking the Lord. Or, or you know, um, you know is, is it okay for Christians to, you know, get into the martial arts and things? I mean, okay, I, I don't see a problem with it per se, but where is it taking you? Is it fueling an anger and an aggressiveness? And, you know, that side of us, is, is, is that a problem? And is this just a big piece, a big log in that kind of fire? Where is your heart going? You know, why do we always have to live right on the edge? Okay, you can have that relationship, but is, is it on the edge? And there's a warning here to be careful of that edge. Be careful of walking on the, as close to the, the edge of the cliff as you can. Because, verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. But then with that warning comes a wonderful moment of grace. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a wonderful verse. Some of you here have memorized it. If you've you've never memorized a verse of the Bible, this would be a cool first verse to memorize. This is like one of those verses you're going to pull out of your holster and use in the spiritual fight. Really good verse. Ready? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And so, yeah, all is, you know, Israel fell into sin, but not all of them. There's a way out. 
So no temptation to seize you, what's common to man. You, you think you're struggling with something? Look, whatever you're struggling with, everyone else struggles with too. So let's get over that. You know, it's all the same stuff. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, grumbling. This is the meat and potatoes, normal stuff we're all struggling with. We all have these temptations. But God is faithful, even when we're unfaithful. God is where he is, even when we're walking the edge. God is faithful, and he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he'll provide a way out. And, you know, I, I can testify from my own life that, that those times in my Christian life where I've been tempted by sin in all of its varieties, and I've, I've sort of had this mentality, I know God will provide a way out. In most of those circumstances, if I'm looking for it, you'll find it. You know, it, it, it'll, it'll show up. And just keep your eyes open. God will show you a way out. He's faithful to this promise. You can take this one to the bank. We don't have to be like all those Israelites who died in the desert. We can be like J- Joshua and Caleb who were faithful and who didn't die in the desert and who got to go into the promised land. You can resist sin, brothers and sisters, in Christ. We can resist the devil. And especially with the help of one another encouraging each other, not being embarrassed because, oh, you wouldn't believe what I'm struggling with. It's like, actually, I would believe because no temptation to seize you except what is common to everyone in this room. So let's just be honest. Let's... Help each other, pray for each other, and find a way out and fight back. And God will help you stand up under it. Therefore, verse 14, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And that's the way out. You just got to run. No more walk on the cliff. If you find yourself teetering on the brink, it's time to leave and to follow the Lord. And to remember, we're here for the prize, which is Christ and his kingdom. So let's seek after Christ with all of our hearts. And that leads us to the final and third argument, which is verses 14 to 22. So the first argument was you need to think of this like an athlete trying to win the prize, get the right mentality. The second argument is be careful of doing what Israel did, walking the edge, falling into sin. And and then in the third argument here in verses 14 to 22, and he wraps up this section, essentially what he does is he hits the issue of idolatry head on. He's basically saying, look, guys, don't commit idolatry in your, the exercise of your religion, the exercise, rather, of your freedom to eat meat offered to idols. Be careful that you don't go so far as to eat meat offered to idols. Because you could imagine it, couldn't it? Here's the guy in Stop and Shop going, I can buy that because I'm free in Christ. It's not a sin. And then your friend invites you over to the house who's not a Christian and they have food offered to idols. You're like, you know what? I can eat that because I'm free in Christ. What's the big deal? And then your friend says, well, let's just go to the idol temple. They're serving up some ridiculously good roast beef there. I mean, you know, the steak tips are great. You know what? I can go to the idol temple because I'm free in Christ. And here's all these pagans. I'll sit there with them. You know, they're worshiping Zeus. I know Zeus is a, is a fantasy. You know, and while they're praying to Zeus, I'll just pray quietly in my heart to Jesus. And at some point now, you're, you're worshiping with pagans. And Paul's like, there's the line you've crossed somewhere in there. Be careful of that because don't you understand that when you actually participate in another religious worship, you are participating with demons. Look at these verses, verses 15 and to 17. So first he talks about communion. He wants to start us off with communion, this, this supper here we're about to enjoy together. He says in verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a, underline this word, participation in the blood of Christ? 
And is not the bread that we break, A, underline this word, participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake. It's the verb there of the same word, of of the one loaf. We're all, we're all partakers of this together. We're partaking together. We're fellowshipping. That Greek word is koinonia. It means fellowship. So that when we're taking communion together and we're eating these elements, it's not just a symbol of Jesus' body and blood that was broken. It is a symbol. It is a memorial. But it's more. It's an actual fellowship with Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's alive. And we're actually fellowshipping with him. And, and this is one of those, those uh, rights that Christ has given to his church by which we have fellowship with him through communion. Fellowship is, communion is sacred. I mean, we call it communion because we're communing with the Lord and with one another. And so this is one of the ways that, that Christ's church on a regular basis has a sweet fellowship with the risen Jesus through the Holy Spirit and with one another. Not that these things literally become the body and blood of Christ. It's not transubstantiation. But that Christ is spiritually present here. And we have fellowship with him. And so now, if that's the case, look where Paul's going. Who are you having fellowship with when you're at the temple of Zeus? Right? Verse 19. Okay, it's not Zeus. Verse 19, do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no, I'm not saying Zeus is real and that you're having fellowship with Zeus. But, verse 20, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be, underline the word, participants, fellowshipping with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Be careful that you don't fall into actual idolatry. There there is a spiritual reality in this world besides Christ. And it is the spiritual world of spirits and darkness. And uh, the Bible teaches it. It's very real. Sometimes as modern people in America, we have a hard time believing in such things, but, you know, the devil likes it that way, frankly, so he can work. And this is real. And, and when we participate in those kinds of things, we, we start touching that side of the darkness, and Paul wants to warn us against that. I've, I don't know if you've ever been uh, exposed to actual idolatry. Um, I spent a summer in Taiwan and visited a number of temples as part of being there. Um, and I, I've been in India and seen some of those temples. And, you know, this is totally subjective. This isn't, you know, biblical teaching. But just my personal experience is walking into those temples at times, just the feeling of darkness, the, the, the kind of spiritual ickiness. And I realize, like, this is a place of darkness. People are worshiping statues instead of the true God. They're enslaved to the darkness. There's something here that's not right. And that's what Paul says. He says he warns us against that, about these sacrifices, because you're participating with demons. So don't, so don't get involved in that. You've got to be careful. I mean, yeah, it's a Ouija board. It's just a game. It's stupid, right? Just plastic. But at what point am I actually participating in divination and I don't even realize it? You know, I read my, my horoscope. I mean, is it wrong to look down at a piece of paper and read your horoscope? No. But if I'm reading my horoscope every week... Oh, I know this isn't real, but what does it say? Like, at what point am I, 
Why am I crossing those lines? Or how about this one? I, you know, we'll, we'll touch the third rail here. It's always fun to touch the third rail. What about yoga? Right? Is it okay for a Christian to, to practice yoga? And, and I, I wonder if the answer isn't what Paul gives us here. Yes, but. Yes, but. I mean, on the one hand, what's yoga? It's just stretching. And it's breathing, and it's flexibility, and it's, it's isometrics. You can go to the gym, you can do isometrics, you can do stretching, you can sit in a quiet room in the dark and breathe. Probably good for a lot of us New Englanders. You know, we should just do that because we're so stressed out and we're going so hard. It'd be good if our whole state just like sat in a quiet room for 15 minutes, closed our eyes, and breathed. It would be good for us. And so on the one hand, it's like meat. Like, what's the big deal, you know? But remember, but remember that yoga is... A religion, you know, not, not in the sense of going to church, but it's a spiritual practice. You know, when yoga was first developed, and we're not exactly sure where it started, but, but it started in Southeast Asia. Remember, it didn't begin because there was some Indian guy with like a back problem who was like, ah, oh, so stiff. But you know, if I find my dog, you know, ah, oh, you know, woo, that feels better. That's not why yoga started. Yoga was a practice as part of a religion to help transcend the illusion, supposedly, of the self and to become one with the, 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 the monistic reality, the all, you know, the Brahman or, or whatever it was, whether it was in the Buddhist system or Hindu system. It was an attempt of transcendentalism. And so you have to be careful, you know? So, I mean, on the one hand, like, can you take a class where you're, like, you know, doing the different poses and getting strong and, you know, and kind of like, oh, okay, whatever, you know? But, but if you suddenly find yourself in a class where every week, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just using an illustration, like for 15 minutes you're sitting quietly meditating and everyone else is transcending and you're like, well, I'll just pray to Jesus at this time. Like at what point is that become any different than the guy who's in the temple of Zeus and he's like, well, I'm just praying to Zeus. You're like, again, I, I don't know where that line is. And really my goal this morning isn't to give you new rules. I want to give you a new mind and a new heart, which I can't do, only the Lord can do. But I want you to have a different mentality. The goal isn't rules. The goal is to love Christ with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself and let that driving love for Christ you know, propel you to follow him. And, and if that means you have to self-discipline in some areas, fine. But, but it should just be pulling you forward rather than saying, well, what can I do? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? You know, what you need is the Lord Jesus. Like I told the first service, all you people are going to die. You're all going to die. Do you have Christ? If you don't have Christ, I don't care what you eat. I don't care how far you can wrap your leg around your head. I don't care if you avoid GM foods and blah, blah, blah. You're going to die no matter what you eat. Do you have Christ? You know? It doesn't matter how rich you are, what your job is, or what your education level is. If you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is not the goal toward which you're striving, you are lost forever. You're already disqualified. 
That's what I'm trying to get us to do, is to seek Jesus with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds. And then who cares about some of this other stuff? You know, it, you'll, you'll be pulled in the right direction. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be like that athlete who wants to lay hold of the crown of eternal life. Let us lay hold of Jesus with everything that we have. And if you don't know Christ, if, if you're here today, and you know, this, most of this sermon, most of this text is kind of teaching for Christians and Christian ethical decisions. But, but if, you know, if, if you're not a Christian, I, I just want to end with maybe kind of like a word of warning and a word of hope for you. The word of warning is just simply, again, without Jesus, you're disqualified. You can't get there on your own. We're lost. No matter what you think of yourself, it doesn't matter whether you think you're qualified or not. It matters what the judge says. And the judge has told us that he has given his only son. That's the good news. Jesus Christ has died for disqualified sinners like me. You know, Jesus is the only guy who was ever qualified. He kept all the rules. He finished the race. He won the crown. He was in the wilderness for 40 years, reliving Israel's history, rather 40 days, reliving Israel's history. And where Israel failed, 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 Jesus passed, passed, passed. He's qualified. And the one who was qualified willingly chose to be crucified like a disqualified guy so that we could be forgiven and brought into his presence. So friends, let us lay hold of Jesus wherever you are, whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, whether you're walking the line, maybe you are disqualified, maybe your heart is broken, whether you know Christ or not, lay hold of Jesus and run for the prize. Let's pray. Oh Lord, life is so confusing and so gray and yet some things are so clear. In Christ there is life. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that you warned us not to gain the whole world and lose our soul. Better, better Lord, to, to have a short life or a painful life with you, Jesus than to gain the whole world and lose our soul. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would call us to yourself, that you would summon us and draw us near, that we would love you, that we would hold on to you. Lord, reveal yourself to us. May you be our heart's desire. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.